Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Hey there, TCC. Uh, for those of you who might be new, my name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here at Tulare Community Church. Please open up your Bibles if you have them to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at chapter 4 today, continuing in our study through this Gospel. So let's read this. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. The heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, and the voice of the Father proclaims that Jesus is the Son who is pleasing to the Father. And then Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested, like it's preparation, like it's training for his earthly ministry, like a montage scene in a movie. Feels dramatic. But I'll be honest. This is not a section of scripture, whenever I read it in any of the synoptic gospels, that I find to be particularly captivating. And that's kind of odd, because it seems like it's jam-packed, filled with drama. We have a showdown in the wilderness. Jesus versus Satan. Satan trying to take him out, and they're sparring with one another. And that would seem to be dramatic and suspenseful. But when reading it, it doesn't strike me that way. And it's not just because of the familiarity, not just because I know what's going to happen, but because this is God we're talking about. Jesus is God. Jesus is fully God. That is the Christian doctrine. It says in Titus, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says in Romans, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them it's traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. It says in Philippians, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And Jesus calls himself God. John chapter 8, verse 58. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. He identifies himself in the same way that God the Father does in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It is a clear teaching of scripture that Jesus is God. But if Jesus is God, 
then this showdown in the wilderness loses all its suspense, doesn't it? Because this is God we're talking about. In pop culture, there's a sense that God and Satan are equal, or at least more equal, where God is the good side and Satan is the bad side, equally powerful beings duking it out for dominance. Or maybe where God has this much power and Satan maybe has this much power, you know, just a little less. But that's not the case at all. Satan is a powerful being relative to humans, relative maybe to other angels, but not relative to God, not at all. Satan is a created being. God is omnipotent. They're not in the same stratosphere. This is like Muhammad Ali in the ring against a mentally handicapped six-year-old. It's not close. They're not equally matched. And so this showdown in the wilderness can strike us as not much of a showdown because this is God we're talking about. That's what our theology says. And so even the temptations don't come across as particularly tempting, right? Uh, Verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. At best, that's a half-truth. The Bible does talk about Satan as the ruler of this world. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Again, in John, it says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And Jesus says again in John chapter 14, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. So there is a biblical notion that Satan is the prince of this world, that he has dominion here. And our world is dark, and our world is naturally aligned with Satan and naturally in rebellion against God. But that's only due to the extent that it is because of God's permissive will. John says of Jesus, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. God made it, and it all belongs to him, including all who live in it and all the kingdoms of the earth. 2 Chronicles 36 verse 23 says, This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. God is the one who is actually sovereign. God is the one who gives kingdoms of the earth to the people. The earth is his and everything in it. So this doesn't seem like much of a temptation, doesn't it? I mean, it'd be the equivalent of saying, I will give you this house if you worship me. That's my house. I own that house. Five bedroom, four bath, great layout. You'll love it. I do love it. That's why I bought it. I own that house. I will throw in a car. That's my car. Sweet minivan can be yours if only you worship me. Not really that tempting, is it? Uh, There's no drama here. There's no showdown here. And victory is never in doubt with Jesus' divine nature. So to really understand this passage, to see the drama of it, to see the suspense of it, we have to view it through Jesus' humanity. 
Jesus is the God-man. Just as Pastor Ryan emphasized last week, he is fully God, but, and also, Jesus is fully man. That's what Christianity actually teaches. Jesus has a human body. Jesus has a human mind. Jesus has a human soul. Jesus is fully man, and that's important for several reasons. But one of the biggest reasons is that if Jesus is not fully man, then he's not a substitute for us. The book of Hebrews is incredibly helpful here. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And then it says this in chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Tempted in every way, but without sin. And so this temptation here in Jesus' response is incredibly important to us, but it's best understood by seeing what his humanity means for us. You know, some people take this passage and they just rush to application, use it as a framework for how we too can resist temptations. And there's something to be gleaned there. But more than anything, this is about Jesus as the God-man, as our representative of obedience. And what we see here is that Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. And Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. It says in 1 Corinthians, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus is the second Adam, and the showdown in the wilderness is a live demonstration of what the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Jesus is the second Adam, but where Adam failed, Jesus doesn't. Adam is the son of God who was tempted by Satan and disobeyed God. Jesus is the son of God tempted by Satan, but who was obedient. Furthermore, the temptation of Jesus is not just a contrast with Adam, but also, and very clearly, it's a contrast with the nation of Israel. Israel in the wilderness for 40 years is analogous to Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. And the way in which he's tempted and the way in which he responds is in contrast to that of the Israelites. And it starts, like so many things do, with food. With Adam, it's the prohibition of food. God says, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent distorts God's words and says, did he really say that? And doubt creeps in, not only about the words of God, but the character of God as well. Is God withholding something good from me? Is God really as trustworthy as I thought? And with the Israelites, immediately after God delivers them from the Egyptians, after they had walked through the Red Sea, we get this account, Exodus chapter 16. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They doubt God. They don't trust God. God isn't sufficient enough to meet their needs, or he's not good enough to meet their needs, or he's not faithful enough to meet their needs. 
Now contrast that with Jesus. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. I would hope so. I would hope he's hungry. If he's not hungry, he's not human. He's a human being. This is about his humanity. He's fully man. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He needs food to live. And in comes the temptation. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, why is this a temptation? Jesus performed all kinds of miracles dealing with food, turns water into wine, catches a huge number of fish, multiplies the loaves and the fishes. What's wrong with performing a miracle? You're hungry. You need food. Just take matters into your own hands. You're God. Be God. You don't need to suffer needlessly. You can end your suffering right now. That's tempting, isn't it? When we face pain, when we face suffering, we want it to end immediately. And what we desperately want in those times, what we desperately want is to take matters into our own hands, to be God. Because we would do things differently if we were in our power. We would put an end to suffering. We would put an end to pain if only we were God. It takes us right back to the first sin, Genesis chapter 3. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Rather than submit to the will of the Father when we face pain, when we face suffering, we want to be God because we would do it better. God must not be good enough. God must not be wise enough. God must not be trustworthy enough. If only we had the power, we would do it right. We would end our suffering. And Jesus has that power. You see the temptation? Why suffer needlessly? But Jesus is the suffering servant. He comes to suffer in his humanity. And he submits himself to the will of the Father to know the pain of hunger, to know the pain of thirst, and ultimately to suffer on a cross. This is not the last time that Jesus will be tempted in this fashion. The voice of Satan comes forth in these words, Luke chapter 23. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. If you are God, be God. Why are you suffering needlessly? Just come off that cross. But unlike the Israelites, unlike us, Jesus perfectly submits to the will of the Father, trusting in the Father, obedient to the Father, even in his suffering. He says this, verse 4, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. He's quoting Deuteronomy. Here's the section. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Where the Israelites failed, Jesus succeeds, including with the next temptation, which is simply idolatry. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. 
We already talked about this in regards to Jesus' divine nature. It doesn't seem much like a temptation, but we have to see this from Jesus' humanity. Jesus is the conquering king. Jesus comes to conquer the darkness, to overcome the world, to overcome Satan's kingdom. And so Satan offers it to him. You can have it. You're the king. You can be the king. I'll hand it over to you. You can have it without the need for the cross. You can conquer the world without the suffering of the cross. All the glory, none of the trials. All the glory, none of the pain, none of the suffering. And isn't that what we want in life too as human beings? Scripture says in 2 Corinthians, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Oh, we want the glory, but we don't want the troubles that achieve the glory. You know, this is such a thing of humanity that we actually have a term called stolen valor. That's where people who have never served in the military dress up in military uniforms and try to pass themselves off as servicemen because they like the response they get. Benefits and honor and respect. And this has become a common enough phenomenon that we coined a term for it, stolen valor. You can understand the motive. You can understand the temptation. I want the honor. I want the glory. I want the war medals. I just don't want the war. Romans 8, 17 says this, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Let me ask you this. If you were offered the chance to share in Christ's glory without the need to share in his suffering, would you be tempted? That's what Satan is offering. You can overcome the world without the suffering of the cross, and all it will take is just a little worship. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Where the Israelites failed, Jesus succeeds. Where we failed, Jesus succeeds. Satan's got to try something else. Verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. How is this tempting? He goads with Scripture, he quotes Scripture, he distorts Scripture. And that's a good reminder to us that even the devil can quote Scripture. It can be misused, it can be misapplied, and it can then be used to lead people astray. And we see that in our world. False teachers offering a false gospel with selective quotes and verses out of context. And the bulwark against that is to be more in the Word. With every temptation here, Jesus answers back with Scripture. It is very easy to get lost just by looking at a verse here and a verse there. But all Scripture is God-breathed, and we have to look at it in its totality. That's why last week we made it a point to just look at a genealogy. It's Scripture. And if we're going to stand firm against temptation, we need to be in the Word, embracing it in its totality, reading it cover to cover. But why is this a temptation? Jump off the temple. What does that accomplish? Well, Satan is inviting Jesus to make himself known. Big spectacle here. You Throw yourself off from the heights of the temple and the angels will catch you. Why the humility after all? Why? 
You're the son of God. Why a birth in a stable? Why Nazareth of all places? Why meek? Why gentle and riding on a donkey? You're worthy of glory. Why not show them? Let's go back to that Philippians passage. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Every single temptation ultimately comes back to the cross. The humility of Jesus is going to lead to the ultimate humiliation on a cross. And the devil is whispering, you don't need humility. You're the son of God. Take your glory without the shame. That's tempting, isn't it? But verse 12, Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. That's when the Israelites were grumbling against God. It's quite an audacious thing to do, isn't it? To grumble against Almighty God. To grumble against the God who has freed them from slavery, who had saved them from the Egyptians, who was leading and guiding them into the promised land, who was feeding them bread from heaven And they respond to this, not in humble gratitude, but with constant and continual grumbling. Where Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. Where we fail, Jesus succeeds. And our passage ends this way, verse 13. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. These are temptations that don't just stop here, but continue all the way to the crucifixion. If we're looking at this showdown, if we're looking at this temptation through Jesus' divinity, it's not much temptation. But seeing it in his humanity, it's temptation like no other. It's temptation greater than we have known. C.S. Lewis explains it this way. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. He understands. He understands it experientially. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus in his humanity is our model. Jesus in his humanity is our representative of obedience. And Jesus in his humanity is our substitute sacrifice. Because he succeeded where we failed. He was tempted in every way, but was without sin. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.